somewhere between waking and sleeping, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 53 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. You can visit the website at bordersofsleep.com to get more information and leave feedbacks or comments, buy me a coffee or join the mailing list. And you can also find us on Facebook where it would be lovely to meet and interact with you. I always try to respond to messages or emails and it's lovely to hear from listeners. So don't be shy and do get in touch if you're enjoying the stories. The soundtrack on this episode is by Jay Kishore and from the album Stories from My Father's Village and that's available on magnitude.com. So if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Flee by Seymour Jacklin The town clung to the rock, with its buildings clustered like crystals in their matrix. The spires were many and called to each other through the blue air above, The buildings were as tall as the streets were wide, giving everywhere a distinct, closed openness in which the sky was as integral to the architecture as the tessellated cobbles of the streets and public squares. In the geometric heart of the agglomeration of red brick buildings and ornate white facades, the art gallery stanced thick and wide, with twinned towers rising from its shoulders into its grey, conical roofs. In fact, this was originally the main gateway into the town in times past, when it had been a fortress. In due course, the urbanisation of the hinterland had swamped it, and much of the old, true town had been levelled into several acres of formal park and public gardens where residents and visitors could stroll, picnic, perch on benches, and unwrap the sticky buns that seemed to be the ubiquitous local obsession. This particular summer, Graham was footloose in Europe, on the trail of his great-grandfather once again. During one of the phases of his ancestors' clandestine work in the war, which it was proving so tricky to unpick, he'd been connected with the Italian resistance, the Resistenza, and the trail took him to the Swiss side of the famous lakes in the north. He had very little to go on, but, as previously, Graham was confident that just placing himself in that location would trigger things to unfold, and he would know what to do next. 
Graham thought he could feel his grandfather in this beautiful town. It had changed very little in the half-century since he'd been there, and it was a thrill to walk into the same scenery that he must have traversed. On his first day in the town, he intended to just play the tourist, soak it all up and follow his feet around. The gallery was a high priority, however. This whole trip wasn't just about investigating his forebears. That was simply the quest that gave structure and purpose to his wanderings, which were nevertheless subject to the greater calls of curiosity and the yearning to experience artistic works close up. This particular afternoon, Graham witnessed a small incident in the gallery, disturbing to some, but to Graham's mind, not to be unexpected. In fact, it was remarkable to him that such things didn't happen more often. There's often the most bizarre dissonance between the drama depicted in many paintings and the cool, contemplative atmosphere in which they are displayed. So Graham had every sympathy with the poor soul who began to moan loudly, pull at his hair and claw at his clothing, even shedding a few buttons from his shirt as he stood before the water jug on that sweltering afternoon. Security were called and the man was ushered out. Moments later, the room returned to unruffled calm and the painting, known as the water jug, glowed upon the wall amongst the other works, yet innocent enough from a distance. The man regained a measure of composure as soon as he was escorted into the sunlight, and he was left sitting by the fountain in the square, looking a little worse for wear. For anyone who had eyes to see, the water jug was an impressive work, an abstract which, with a little imagination, could be seen as simultaneously a view from within and without a clay water jug. There was something about the arid intensity of the oils which had the dry crackalure of baked mud contrasting sharply with the mere shimmer of water in a gossamer blue line that was brushed with a casual stroke and so lightly as to be hardly there at all yet it leapt out with the most delicious promise to quench all thirst. Perhaps it was this extraordinary quality of the painting that had provoked a moment of apparent insanity in the gallery visitor. Subtly, the painter's signature appeared like cuneiform scratches in the oil. Bottom right, four letters, spelling F-L-E-A. Flea. was considered to be one of the greatest works of Flea's later period. She was known as Flea to herself and to the world, her given name having been abandoned at the first opportunity, associated as it was with the constant reprimands dealt her in early life. It's likely that her diminutive appearance and her wiry energy gave rise to her alias, as well as her tendency to leap all over the globe and to turn up unexpectedly. In these early days, what the critics called her first phase, Flea had ranged abroad, always looking for new subjects to paint. 
She'd travelled hard and hurt herself for her art, often going hungry, but whenever she caught sight of her drawn figure in the mirror, she was content with the starving artist who stared back at her. Life was widescreen and technicolour, an adventure full of romantic words like Paris and New York, and exotic ones like Dali and Bogota. But there was an undercurrent tugging at her ankles, a small voice that would flirt with her as she worked on the canvas. She was being seduced by detail. It began with the pigments, as she found herself trying to replicate the patina of surfaces in the very texture of her brushwork. She found she needed to travel shorter and shorter distances before something stopped her in her tracks and cried out to be alchemized in paint. One day the thought occurred to her that she was going greater distances to buy the perfect pigment than to encounter the perfect subject. Happily, this love affair began to entirely consume her just at the time when the critics woke up to her work. By the time the attention she deserved finally came, she was too deep in her obsession to care. The financial rewards came too. For the first few years, they simply eased her debts. Later on, they seemed irrelevant. Rarely, an obsessionist does not calculate a budget like a banker or a mother does. All that stuff happened out there somewhere. Graham's entanglement with fine art had begun early. His parents had books full of pictures and photographs of sculptures with daunting blocks of text droning on and on about long dead people, whereas the illustrations in his reading books brought the stories to life and depicted the narrative that he could read. The writing and the scenes depicted in these art books had no relation to each other. Here was a picture of a girl, a shepherdess, turned slightly away and looking back, but the surrounding text wibbled on about some salon, which didn't make sense because Mum went to the salon to get her hair done. Then there were people with long unreadable names and something about a school, which didn't seem like the school he knew. He did drawing at school and liked it, but it was by no means on any discernible continuum with the pictures in the books. It just wasn't possible to make pictures like that. However, he did like to look at the full-paged colour plates and make up his own stories. That's how he got an inkling that maybe he liked art, and maybe someone called Rembrandt was his favourite artist. It was a grown-up sort of sounding thing, and he imagined talking to a grown-up one day about how he liked Rembrandt. One afternoon he took the Rembrandt book to his favourite chair and let himself daydream through the pages. He liked a picture called The Night Watch. There was so much detail to explore. The little dog, the very short person with ill-fitting armour, all the white faces in the darkness. He liked the two fellows in the foreground, their fancy moustaches and their respective uniforms, one black and one white. But he most fancied himself as the soldier in red, on the left, who was in the act of loading his musket. 
Most of the other characters were distracted with one thing or another, but this chap was ready for action. Today his attention was drawn again to the little girl, who seemed to be caught under everyone's feet and yet she was somehow in the spotlight. Maybe she was looking for her little dog. Was she just a bit player in the scene caught in the wrong place and time, or had she something to do with the whole commotion in the first place? And then, where was the light coming from, and why was it shining so clearly on some of the faces and not the others? That was when he saw the light, a moment from which he never returned. The idea occurred to him that the light was generated by the mind of the artist himself. Now Graham had got a torch for his ninth birthday. He liked to go under the quilt with it after lights and make himself a light cave. He loved to run his fingers through its beam and make shadow plays on the walls of his cave. It was a fascinating kind of liquid, but Rembrandt didn't need a torch. He made his own light. It was possible to create light inside your own head and use it however you wanted to, and it would never need the batteries changing. Graham had flipped through a few more coloured pages. There it was, again and again, in every picture the light, created inside the head and then somehow fixed upon the canvas. So began his love affair with art, and it stayed with him all the way to this sun-flooded day in the footsteps of his great-grandfather. Flea embedded herself in the world as it uniquely came to her, everything in layers of varying degrees of opacity, showing shadows of the layers beneath them, buried ever deeper in the history of the material. Her obsession was translating her vision with the growing vocabulary of her handmade pigments and their surfaces. A mortar and pestle was essential to her toolkit as her brushes, Everything could literally become grist to her pounding and scraping. It is typical for the trajectory of a great artist's popularity to have two humps. A treacherous roller coaster it is. The first rise is sharp and relatively short lived, but the one that comes many years later dwarfs the first by an order of magnitude and oftentimes arrives far too late for them to ever know about it. The second is longer and slower and raised on the pillars of such clichés as before their time and undiscovered genius. Flea settled eventually and she worked as long as there was daylight, sourcing whatever she needed within a couple of miles radius of her studio, even to the point of pulling horsehair and hackling her own plant fibres for her brushes. In spite of a prolific output, she would sell new work only when she had need for rent and food. The rarity of its circulation ensured she could get by on two or three paintings a year. And so, to some extent, she fell into the outsider's bind, a cruel trick of life by which her outsideness gave her the freedom of independent thought and unorthodox creative paths, while also disqualifying her from being much understood in her lifetime. 
When Graham left the gallery, tripping out into the full glare of midday sun on white sandstone, alabaster and marble, he caught sight of the man again, the fellow who had made a scene, recovering himself by the fountain in the square. He was not a typical tourist, but he didn't look like a local either. He looked brown and weathered with a shock of swarthy hair. His shirt was strikingly white, and his blue linen slacks were faded at the knees. Their eyes met. Graham smiled, but not too broadly, in case he should seem to be laughing at him. He wanted to convey in one look that he knew how the man felt. The man seemed to smile back, but he could have been grimacing at the sun. It was an afternoon for madness. At certain times during the summer, the air would cascade down over the Dolomite Mountains to the north, but it would bring no relief from the heat. Rather, passing over the sun-warmed bare peaks, it would heat like an oven and then settle on the town below. In some parts, it was said, you could cook an egg on the stones. Graham looked for a table at one of the terrace bistros facing onto the square and when he next looked across at the fountain, the man had gone. Over lunch, Graham looked over his notes again. He had memorised their contents for the most part, but there was something about the handling of the bundles of paper that helped him to ground himself simultaneously in the past and the present. An envelope had somehow survived, even though separated from its contents. Nevertheless, there was an address on it, the main reason for his being here. He intended to walk over to that quarter of town and see if he could find the building, and just to keep following the gut hunches that had served as perceptive guides so far. Flea's greatest mentor, Louis, had impressed the very gestures of his brush into her practice, such that years later she still felt his hand guiding hers, he seemed to be with her again as she riffled an old fork under the tap, pushing the paint off it with her thumbnail. The electric fan on the windowsill snarled and rumbled but did little to shift the languid air. It had been a day just like this. He'd come to her studio just as she was washing her brushes with her back to her most recent, completed work. Done, she called out hearing his weight pressing the floorboards. He had stopped in the doorway, looking past her at the freshly daubed canvas. I'll let you into a secret, he said, leaning close to whisper in her ear. Nothing is ever done. He had not intended to discourage her, and nor did he. Louis's secret pieces of advice initiated her into greater depths of her own work. He was right, of course. The improvisation never stopped. It was especially true of that canvas on that day, for it came to be titled Unfinished in her mind, and as such, she never felt she could part with it. This came to be another feature that dogged her work. She could never feel a piece was completed. It was under some duress of necessity that she would let something go. Flea moved to the window. She peeled a cigarette out of a crumpled packet, but didn't light it, just stood by the window, 
twirling it in her fingers, pondering. Something wanted to move inside her, a kind of growling, like the fan. The world had changed. Attention spans had become shorter, even in the world of deep aesthetics. Humans were being effectively reduced to consumers, and artists competed for their attention, racing constantly against the questions of what's new and what's next. She wouldn't play that game, and so she'd been obscured. For a decade, nothing new from Flea had appeared on the market. She was largely unaware of the way her paintings had begun to change hands for higher and higher prices. When she heard rumours of it, she felt hollow. The works had clearly become separated so far from her original intentions and reduced to a mere currency among the wealthy. It was time to make things right again. Something she saw in the street below gave her an idea. Yes. The weight dropped from her chest into her stomach. Ha! That'll put the cat among the pigeons, she said to herself. When the air is like thick soup, nothing seems quite real. Sharp edges, like the corners of buildings, are piercing in their relief, but everything else liquefies around them. Graham was regretting the cold beer that had been so refreshing over lunch, for now it was a slightly bitter, lingering aftertaste and a fuzziness in the head. His belt chafed on his belly. He was relieved to see the word Mercatinoplatz on the next block of buildings and turned aside into the little square. This was the place. It was a lazy time, siesta hour, with not many people about and nobody moving quickly. The square was even less peopled than the street, but it accommodated a cluster of covered market stalls. It looked good and shady under the awning. The sun made little forays into the interior, highlighting the promising outlines of curiosities to be probed and scrutinised. There was an elderly lady perched on the wall opposite. Her pink slacks and white plimsolls matched the blossoms of bougainvillea behind her. Her once white t-shirt was shapeless and smeared with paint. She watched Graham as he ducked into the shade and began to browse the tables which were strewn with bric-a-brac. She had both the smoker's callus on the side of the terminal joint on her middle digit and the artist's callus on the side of her index finger where the brush rested, each with their respective stains of yellow and grey. She crossed one leg over the other and leant forward with one elbow on her knee, blew a stream of smoke into the air in front of her face and watched it fade. It felt no cooler in the shade, but a break from the glare was a relief to Graham's eyes. His head cleared. Always such displays held the promise of some treasure passed over by the less discerning, and Graham typically preferred to carry home souvenirs that were marked with use or longevity rather than the repetitive offerings of local gift shops. It was turning out to be a good afternoon. One table held a couple of boxes of unframed canvases, and some larger ones were leant against it at ground level. 
They were nothing like the canvas decor prints that can be bought cheaply anywhere to fix up a room like a catalogue page. But Graham could see immediately these had the whirled and scraped finish of heavily applied oil paint. It was difficult to make them out in the shade. He squatted down by the larger paintings and took his time. He could feel the old lady's eyes on him and smell her cigarette smoke. They might have been the only two people in their worlds at that moment. The lady minding the stall sat quietly in the shadow with her hands on her lap, her eyes half closed. The sounds of passers-by were muffled in the thick air, non-playing characters in the scene. The paintings ghosted into focus as if he was seeing them through several surfaces. They were dark, but had the glow of internal light that had first captivated him in Rembrandt's work. But these were contemporary, abstract, oddly familiar. Graham felt he'd seen this before, the ceramic effect, as if a piece of earthen pottery had been unfolded and flattened onto the canvas. He touched the surface of one of them as he wouldn't dare to in a gallery. It felt cool, almost wet, and he fought the urge to put his cheek up against it. There was something akin to the gut reaction that must have assaulted the poor fellow in the gallery that morning. It couldn't be, surely. He squinted to try and discern a signature. There was nothing discernible. Were these abandoned? Unfinished works? He stood up and poured through the smaller pictures in the boxes. Some of these were certainly in different stages of completion. Nevertheless, a certainty was beginning to glow in his stomach. He stepped back and breathed, absorbing the possibility that he'd stumbled on an unimaginable treasure. Quite apart from the idea that he was looking at an undiscovered cache of fleas paintings, or at least some very good art, regardless of who'd done it, Graham had an enormous urge to be up close to these paintings. One in particular reminded him so viscerally of that early moment in the armchair with Rembrandt. He asked the sleepy store-minder the price, gesturing to one of the large pieces with his foot and trying not to seem too interested. Twenty francs? He paid that for his lunch. Graham counted the money he was carrying. It was enough twice over for the large painting. He could have the other one too. He could overthink this. His mind was racing already, as if the boat might leave harbour without him if he hesitated for too long. He liked the paintings. He could afford them. That was enough. He kept up his nonchalance and used as few words as possible to indicate that he'd like to buy the two, expecting his voice to break at any moment. The lady took his money and stuffed it into the pocket of her apron. He asked her if she knew who had painted the pictures, but she shook her head. Somebody had a clear out, she said. It all has to go. He took possession of the paintings awkwardly hefting one under each arm and then shifting them onto his front and sort of getting them in a ballroom hold. Flea couldn't hear what the lady said to the stranger who was struggling to manoeuvre with his arms full of two of her larger canvases like huge sails. 
His hands were so occupied that he couldn't wipe the sweat from his forehead and he was blinking it out of his eyes. She liked the blue of his checked shirt and he had good hands. Yes, good hands, she thought to herself, chuckling. <laughs>